Today's scripture reading is from James chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks for reading God's word to us. Ryan, we, uh, we, um, we've got a new setup here, so if you're at home um, tuning in, please be patient with us as we try to figure out details um, and, and figure out how exactly we can continue holding our services. From, uh, from this space, and God willing, as we'll be talking about later, including more and more of you in these gatherings. But for now, I want to invite you to pray with me. Our God, our Father, the Ancient of Days, our, our hearts are laid bare before you. And so we ask that the meditations of our hearts words of my mouth, that they would all be acceptable and pleasing to you. And Lord, we ask that you would give us the help we need to receive with meekness the implanted word that's able to save our souls. Amen. Starting in 2019, we spent 15 weeks studying the book of James. It was a pre-COVID world for most of us. In fact, our final Sunday in James was March 8th, which also happens to be the last Sunday that we gathered as a church in this building. So over the past three plus months, many of James's words have, have echoed in my mind, maybe in yours too. I am convinced that through the pages of this inspired letter, our God was preparing us for what lay ahead, for realities that we're living with now. So today, we are going to revisit James. We'll reread some, of the, some sections of this letter in light of what we've experienced since March. Too often, I think we read God's word and then we move on, or we study it together in our discipleship groups or elsewhere, and then we just move on and ask, what's next? Sometimes we, we need to come back to revisit, to reprocess and reconsider and respond to what God has told us. So, New Hope, today, let's go back. So I want to invite you to please open to the book of James. And as you open up, um, you might remember that James was most likely written by the brother of Jesus Christ, the biological son of Joseph and Mary. And after James witnessed his older brother's crucifixion and resurrection, he dedicated his life to proclaiming that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in this letter, he's writing as a pastor to believers. And his goal is to help them, to help us, understand how to live out of our belief. He shows us how faith in Jesus Christ drives and shapes 
the details of how we live. He addresses many themes in this letter. We're going to look at just three of those themes that are especially pertinent right now where we find ourselves. Here are the three themes. Our plans, our prejudice, and our pain. Plans, prejudice, and pain. We're going to revisit each one of those really briefly because those messages are still up online and you can go back and and listen to them um, where, where we look in more detail at each of these themes. But for now, let's look at what James has to teach us about our plans. James chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. Who of us in February would have thought that a month later we'd be masked and locked down and battling a virus that would claim more than 120,000 lives right here in the States and almost 500,000 lives worldwide? What became of our plans at the beginning of this year? In these verses, James calls us out for talking about all the things that we would do as if it was all under our control. He says that's not only presumptuous, there's a subtle pride in it. Verse 16, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. You see, the problem isn't that we plan for the future. It's that we plan as if we have the power to make our plans a reality. It's planning while forgetting God. 2020 has shown us that that is naive at best, and at worst, it's delusional. James is here to correct our perspective. Instead of letting us boast in our arrogance, he encouraged us, verse 7, to submit ourselves, therefore, to God. And to, verse 10, humble ourselves before the Lord. He told us three basic things in this section. He says, we don't know much, we don't live very long, and our future is fully dependent on God. Verse 14, yet you don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. God gave us these words to awaken us out of our prideful delusion. You're a puff of smoke, he says, here and gone. He's reminded his people of this so many times over thousands of years. Like in Psalm 144, he says, Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. And in Job 14, his days are determined. And the number of his months is with you, God. And you have appointed his limits that he cannot pass. But it's so hard for us to internalize that, isn't it? As author Alec Mottier said, we take the reins of life into our hands and we forget our ignorance, our frailty, independence. 
We plan our day, our week, and next year as if we were lords of earth and time. As if there were no God in heaven. New Hope, we can't know all of the reasons that our sovereign God has led us into this season. Allowed a virus to creep across the planet, taking from families, affecting jobs and economies, changing the way we live. No doubt there are many reasons. Because when God does one thing, he's really doing millions of things. But could it be that he is showing us again the frailty of our plans? the instability of the things that we trust in, the brevity of human life? Is he showing us how little we control, how little we know about what awaits us? And if he's doing all this, why? As we said before, James' purposes and his purpose in these verses, and perhaps one of God's purposes in this weird, weird year, to help us. In the words of verse 7, submit ourselves, therefore, to God. Perhaps his purpose is to help us, in the words of verse 10, to humble ourselves before the Lord. If that is God's purpose in bringing us into the season, if it's one of his many purposes, that's because he loves us. It's good to be humbled by our God, to learn humility from him. Because it says, later in the same letter, in chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. When our God humbles us, that's a gift. In fact, he does it to make us wise. You see, when we walk through the days of our life confident in our power and our plans, we forget God. And that's the opposite of wisdom. James would say, as he does in chapter 3, verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. But the wisdom that God gives, it's a wisdom that acknowledges our utter dependence on him. Proverbs 9 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom starts there. And so God has brought us back to the start. You know, Moses once prayed, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Psalm 90. Are we getting a heart of wisdom? Brothers and sisters in Christ, as we go through this strange year, this troubling year, are we getting a heart of wisdom? The more in touch we are with the frailty of life, with what we don't know, the wiser we will be. Have you grown in wisdom? Gavin Ortland wrote, so often we treat our days as a given when really they're a gift. Are you learning to see your days that way? Are you learning to say with James 4, 15, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If he wills. Are we all learning to acknowledge his control 
and to submit all our plans, our lives to him. As you have faced whatever the past three months have brought to you, are you learning to live this way? We hope to start gathering as a church soon. But we hold these plans loosely and we submit them to the Lord. His will be done. James taught us that. He didn't just teach us about our plans, though. He taught us about our prejudice. Our prejudice. I'll flip back to, please, to James chapter 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or, or you sit here, my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? James confronted us through these words for showing partiality. We might call it prejudice or discrimination. It's not a new problem. It's not a uniquely American problem. It is a human problem. And it takes many forms. James wrote to Christians who were prone to give care and respect to certain people, in this case, the wealthy, and to mistreat the poor. And, and they did this even though they themselves knew what it felt like to be oppressed by wealthy people. Which shows us that experiencing prejudice doesn't keep us from committing prejudice. So how about us? What kind of partiality do we show? Here's one for me, one example. I am often partial towards those in my theological tribe. What I mean by that is simply people who understand and apply the Bible like I do, who hold the same theological distinctives. I might give them respect more easily. I might be more willing to hear them out without judgment. How about you? What does partiality look like in your life? Is it prejudice towards people who hold the same political views and commitments? Are you poor partial to them because they hold to the same political ideas? And so you give them the benefit of the doubt. Perhaps you judge them to be smarter or at least better informed. Or maybe you judge them to be kinder and better people. It's interesting that in, in each of these cases, and in so many other cases, when we show partiality, we're really preferring 
ourselves. We're serving our interests. In James, they were treating rich people better, presumably because if, if, if they did that in some way, it, was, it would benefit them. It was in these people's interest to treat wealthy visitors well. In many cases, we are partial towards people who are like us, who have the same opinions, same politics. And like those Christians in James, we're really serving our own interests. When we prefer people who are like us, we're really preferring ourselves. Perhaps we respect them because they affirm us in our beliefs, in our opinions. And we don't respect those who don't. Disagreement in and of itself is not partiality. But thinking someone less, to, to be less deserving of your respect, of honor, of protection, of care, of consideration because of their opinions, their beliefs, etc. That is partiality. It's prejudice. And it takes so many forms. We are not naturally impartial people. Even when it comes to ideas, we're not impartial. We are often partial to those ideas that confirm what we want to believe. We're predisposed to reject the ideas that make us feel bad. We're partial to data that confirms what we've already accepted as true. So many ways to be partial. James focuses on prejudice towards certain people. And it's a prejudice that leads us to discriminate in ways that he calls evil. Chapter 2, verse 4. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? He goes on to say that such discrimination is a failure to love our neighbor. And then, even more forcefully, look at verse 9. He says, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So the question we need to keep asking, how are we showing partiality? How have we shown partiality? I said it's not a uniquely American problem, and that's for sure. But it has indelibly marked the history of our nation. Brothers and sisters, I think we all know this. American society was split and stratified from its very beginnings. Quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. It's a biblical truth found in our Declaration of Independence, adopted in 1776, affirmed by the framers of that document. It's a truth that they confessed and signed off on, but many of them functionally, functionally undermined that truth by their practice. For over 100 years, African people had already been enslaved at that point, trafficked across the Atlantic, sold as property here. And remember, we said partiality is always self-serving. And this is no exception. These enslaved people were used as free labor 
to build personal wealth for their enslavers and their families and their descendants. And, and that would continue for almost another hundred years. Most of us know this. I'm, I'm, I'm pointing to obvious truth. At the very start of this society, a brutal partiality created two classes of people, free and enslaved, white and black. And it took a vicious civil war to end the business of chattel slavery. But the partiality did not stop. Partiality and never stops that easily. After all, we are naturally not impartial people. And prejudice is rooted so deeply in, the, in, in our hearts, a sin so deeply ingrained we're not naive enough to believe that when the Emancipation Proclamation took effect, that the partiality disappeared. It didn't. Practices like convict leasing, so-called black codes, lynching, Jim Crow law, real estate redlining, separate but equal schools, and more. Maybe you can come up with more examples. What are those? If not, partiality enforced by law, instituted and perpetuated by people, in many cases, Christians. In James's words, with evil thoughts. Praise be to God for the changes we've seen in our nation. Some of our parents and grandparents lived through some of those changes. They were hard fought. We praise God for them. They were also opposed at every point. And still, praise the Lord. But the effects. Oh, the damage and the pain. How deeply has this partiality been ingrained? Do we naively believe that we've erased the partiality from our culture and from all of our institutions? or we've erased all of its effects, that we've washed our hands of it as a society, and have started clean. If we really believe that, then we have an impoverished understanding of sin and the profound complexity of sin's destructive power. You know, in the very next chapter of James, he confronts Christians for using their tongues to bless our Lord on the one hand, and then chapter 3, verse 9, curse people who are made in the likeness of God. And that line, it gives us insight into what makes partiality so evil in God's eyes. It does violence to people he made in his image, whom he instilled with dignity, who in the words of Psalm 8, he crowned with glory and honor. And so in big or small ways, every act of selfish partiality does damage, inflicts hurt 
on a man, a woman, a child made in the image of God. No wonder he takes prejudice personally in all its forms. My goal isn't to blame each person here or anywhere as individuals for all of our nation's sins. Goal simply is to acknowledge the weight of those sins, realistically. And to at least ask two simple questions. The first one is this, are we examining ourselves to see where prejudice lies? To see if even prejudice in the form of racism sits here in our hearts, in our thinking, in our choices, in our words, in our jokes. Is there racism here? That sin that everyone agrees is a problem, but no one seems to see in themselves. Are we asking God to search us? Because we know how deceptive sin is, and you know how tricky it is, and how it hides and how blind we are to see, especially our own partiality. Are we asking God to search us? Are are, are we saying, Lord, do I in subtle ways see some groups of people negatively? And, And as a result, do I see them as less worthy of my respect? Perhaps less deserving of my trust? less deserving of my care or my protection. In my words and my actions, am I communicating, am I promoting that kind of evil? Are we examining ourselves? And there's a second question. Are we willing to listen to our black brothers and sisters when they tell us that all is not fine? that they're in pain, that they're scared, that they're frustrated, that they're tired. Are we willing to listen impartially, patiently, not passively, mindlessly, but patiently, impartially? Are we willing to listen, not to refute or defend or explain away, but in the words of James, Are we willing to be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger? And there's different ways that that listening could look. It could look like conversations with black brothers and sisters, with those of us who are not black. It can look like reading and learning that way. Better learning how to respond. And that reading doesn't have to happen all alone. It can happen in community. If you want a couple of recommendations, there are certainly things that I've read even very recently that I've found helpful that I'm happy to pass on to you. Maybe you have recommendations to make to me or to others. Let's share them. Let's be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. James taught us about our prejudice. I've just highlighted one sort of prejudice there. Well, I highlighted a few, but I really focused on one in particular. 
and there are many others. But as we sit here in June of 2020, it seems the Lord is bringing this particular prejudice to our doorsteps and saying, will you examine yourselves? Will you listen? James taught us about our plans. He taught us about our prejudice. And finally, he taught us about our pain. This letter starts and ends talking about pain. It starts this way. Chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 2020 has been a year of trials. Illness. Loss. Loneliness. Joblessness. Senseless destruction. Broken plans. And it hasn't ended yet. Heard some of us even now dealing with the pain of illness and the danger of loss in this community, in this church. For some, the trial was being confined with your family for extended periods of time and confronted with your own sinfulness. God, through James, was preparing us for all of that. He was preparing us to count it all joy. How can we do that? The only way we can count all these trials, all joy, is if we see under and, and above them and behind them a loving Father God who's testing our faith. Not so he can see what it's made of, but so we will see what it's made of. And to refine, to purify that faith. And to produce steadfastness. That we may be perfect and complete, that is mature and complete. Consistently living lives that are consistent with the gospel we believe in. Living lives that align with the truth of the gospel. James was writing to believers in Jesus Christ. And the faith that he talks about again and again through this book is not some kind of generic faith in something. It's faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. It's a faith that looks to Jesus, that is trusted in the gospel of his death and his resurrection as the only hope for acceptance with God and forgiveness for all of our partiality and all of our pride and all of our sins. Furthermore, it's a faith in Jesus Christ that results in works. And James tells us that again and again. What kind of works? We'll go back and read this letter. 
I hope you will. I plan to. We were reminded in James that at least, at the very least, we've been reminded today that faith in Christ is meant to result in repentance, turning away from our proud plans and toward a humble submission to God's will, to repent from prejudice that dishonors God's image bearers, and to turn toward a love that listens and honors and many other works. If you have never trusted in Jesus Christ to bring you forgiveness and acceptance with God, please don't think that the point of all this is be more humble and be less racist, be less prejudiced. That's not the point. The point is to believe in Jesus Christ and then to be empowered by his spirit in you to live transformed lives, increasingly aligning with the truth of the gospel. As you strive to live out your faith, and Jesus works in you by his spirit to make it possible. This letter starts and it ends talking about pain. 2020 is not over yet. And based on how it's going, it is safe to say that there is more pain ahead. James is here to prepare us for the rest of this crazy year and beyond. So let's end today, New Hope, by simply hearing what God has for us in the final chapter of this letter. James chapter 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Praise be to God. Please pray with me. We commit ourselves to you, Lord. And everything that we will encounter in the rest of this year, all that's gone before us and all that lies ahead of us, we commit it all to you. You've given us so much grace, but you've told us here in James that you give more grace. Please do this. For good, the good of your people, for the good of this land, for the glory of your name. Amen.